Welcome to Osteocast, where we talk about all things osteopathy, functional anatomy, and movement. With your hosts, myself, Sarah, Colby, and Amanda. Please note that this podcast is not medical advice and is for educational purposes only. Please seek advice from your primary care physician when necessary. Here's today's episode. Today's episode is on the knee joint. So we're going to do a little anatomy review like we've been doing lately and chat about the knee and how it functions as well as some osteopathic considerations in treatment and assessment for it. So we'll dive right in. Um, Everyone knows the knee. I'm sure if you're a practitioner of some sort that you've had patients in with knee issues and or yourself if you've uh, done any sort of physical activity really throughout life, someone's had a sore knee from some reason, whether you've fallen on it or twisted it or turned it. So um, as far as knees go, without diving right into the anatomy, the knee itself is a pretty simple joint. It's a, a hinge joint. It has a little bit of translation available to it or a little bit of rotation for the knee locking mechanism, but for the most part, it's directly a hinge joint. Uh, it has some ligamentous support on basically the sides and then some muscular and tendinous support on the front and back. So it makes it a, a quite a stable joint because of how big the musculature that goes across it, but just because it's lack of overall range of motion capacity, it also brings us to a point where it does have some failures quite often and easily like an ACL rupture or MCL rupture, which are ligaments of the inside of the knee or the medial side of the knee. So knees themselves, uh, as it comes to like catastrophic injuries is something that happens a lot of the times in sports and sometimes also just with wear and tear, you'll see things like the meniscus, which is essentially a pad that sits between the femur and the tibia in order to kind of cushion the joint a little bit for shock absorption and to make sure that it stays in place because the meniscus itself has a concave style pattern, which means it's like two little cups that hold the heads or the condyles of the femur in that place. So you'll see injuries like this all the time and you'll have patients come in the clinic with injuries, um, medically diagnosed like joint injuries with it. And you'll also see lots of variations of aches and pains in the knees, whether it's with going upstairs or going downstairs or loading or sitting in place. Um, Sometimes you even have people that come in with aches and pains just from sitting for too long in the knee. So the knee is a joint that has all kinds of uh, indications and all kinds of things that can occur with it. Um, And then as we get into the assessment and treatment process of it, you'll, we'll find that similar to um, the ankle, it's really mostly affected by the things above and below it. And there is some direct, action at the knee, but it's oftentimes based on the loading pattern of the hip and pelvis. So which one of you guys is going to give us a little deep dive into the anatomy and some of the musculature around the knee? Well, as a very brief overview and not too in-depth, on the anterior side of the leg, we have the quadricep muscles. So there's four of them. Um, there's one on the medial side, one on the lateral side, and then two stacked kind of in the middle. And then they all come together in to one form, one tendon. And then that tendon actually wraps around the patella, which is another joint of the knee, quote unquote, um, more of a plain joint. And then that tendon goes around the patella and attaches into the tibial, um, plateau or tibial tuberosity there. So 
Um, on the back is our hamstrings, and we see that there's three muscles there. Um, and depending on which muscle you're looking at, it attaches on the medial lateral side um, on the posterior surfaces of the tibia. And there is also your gastroc muscles or um, your calf muscles that cross the back of the knee as well. So when Colby talks about there being lots of support, um, there are quite a few muscles, um, another big one. Um, that doesn't quite cross the knee joint but stabilizes the knee as well as the sartorius and that comes from your hip down and attaches to the medial side of the knee as well. So we know that the knee joint can obviously do flexion extension right that's all very obvious to everybody else but there's also a little bit of a lateral glide of the knee so we can have uh, more external rotation of the knee and a little bit less internal rotation but it makes it really different than the hinge joint found in other parts of the body because of this lateral motion capacity that's available to it. And that just can happen because of all of the different mechanics Amanda and Colby have mentioned and how supported the knee is by muscles and ligaments that allows it to kind of push that joint motion capacity a little bit more than other places in the body. And then, of course, we have our navel, which is our nerve artery vein lymphatics of the knee. And that basically everything drains up towards the hip, as we know. So everything, lymphatics and veins are going to be going up. Um, blood supply will be kind of going down and around. We call it the genicular, but basically there's a nice big, almost spider web assortment of arteries and veins that sit around the knee and that just innervates the joint, the ligaments, all the nearby tendons of the muscles and that keeps the um, blood supply strong for the knee and keeps everything healthy. And of course, blood supply comes from the uh, femoral artery and nearby areas and as well drains up towards the hip. Do we want more detail? No, I think if you're if you're someone that's listening to this podcast, it's important that you bring up a photo of the knee. There's tons of them on the internet and you can see everything. You can get a visual for everything that we're we're talking about. Um, and in general, we want to make sure that that blood supply to and from the area is open and able to move. So um, that involves looking above and below like we've already kind of talked about. In terms of lesion patterns you guys see in the knee in the clinic, um, is there anything, maybe not specific, but anything that's somewhat reoccurring functionally with knee patterns that you, you will notice? Or if you're looking at the knee, is there something that you're always going to double check um, in terms of a, an assessment if someone comes in with some knee pain? Well, the knee itself, when it comes to um, ass assessment, is pretty simple. It's not an extremely complicated joint, but something that we see often in clinic, and it it's not even just the knee. It's a pattern that occurs from the torso to the hip to the knee to the ankle is that external rotation of the tibia on the femur, like a, an external tibial torsion. And usually that occurs because the, or what occurs is the tibia is rotated externally. So the toes face more lateral than the knee itself does. So you're assessing between the angle of the femur and the angle of the tibia to see what's going on there. Um, most commonly it's loading pattern based because your body will want to 
make the foot wider in some extent by externally rotating the foot to give a little bit more stability when there's a lack of stability of or control coming from above. And sometimes this will also occur because there's a rotation of some sort at the pelvis that's limiting the foot's ability to swing through during the gait cycle. So you'll start to rotate the tibia laterally to make sure the foot can clear the ground as you're stepping or walking or running. But it's a really common, I find, knee issue that we see that external rotation of the tibial torsion. Um, there's a handful of other things, but that's probably the most common just with the most common lesion patterns that I'm seeing anyways most days. I would totally agree with that. The other thing I see that paired with often um, is like an anterior center of gravity from the pelvis. So the pelvis is has kind of this like drag almost forward. Um, and so there's more of a loading through the knee as well, which causes those feet, which causes your feet to kind of externally rotate and create more of a balanced center. Um, so often if you can look, look above and kind of bring that, bring your pelvis back underneath yeah. um, your rib cage, that will typically correct or um, aid in the healing process for um, knee pain, knee dysfunction, swelling. Yeah. There's lots of things that that can help with. And as you say that with the foot being rotated as well, like as that foot externally rotates from not only the tibia, but also at the ankle, you'll notice that the patients, instead of walking of like a, I'm going to just simplify, but a heel to toe pattern, it's more of a diagonal across the arch and you'll start to see some fallen arches because of it. Mm -hmm. But with that anterior hip or anterior center of gravity, the body's trying to create a little bit more stability through the foot because it's too much tension for all of that weight to go forward on the Achilles and the the muscles and the, the fascia of the foot. So your body starts to rotate just to basically rely on the bony structure a little bit more, but that can cause all kinds of other issues uh, downstream or compensations mm -hmm. for it if it's not working how it's supposed to. One thing I also see is um, the talocural joint is stuck in a plantar flex position and that almost creates extension at the knee. So then the posterior aspect of the knee is um, almost edemic. Like there feels like there's extra fluid there. The knee itself isn't um, very bony, if you will. Like it's a very soft structure. There isn't good um, formed anatomy in that area. And it's very interesting. And it would um, almost correlate more with the posterior anterior line of gravity as well. So kind of the opposite of what Amanda was saying. But it is interesting when people present and to get them standing and then seated to see the difference in their body because it tells you a lot of information and kind of where to go in your treatment and what to focus on assessing. Well, you'll start to see that pattern change um, as it becomes more chronic as well, right? So yeah. initially you might just see a little bit of lack of movement at the knee or the ankle and then the hip becomes involved and then the center of gravity changes in one direction. So there's almost like a bowing happening from the middle. And then as that becomes more chronic, then we start to see more like almost like back and forth patterns happening. If you're looking at the patient from the side, you might see that, you know, their ankles in that plantar flex position, the knee is posterior, the hip is anterior, the shoulders posterior. So you'll start to see that sort of work its way up the chain as that becomes more of a chronically led pattern. So when we talk, talk to patients about, you know, should you be seen after you've had some sort of a traumatic event, 
but you're feeling okay, it's always a good idea to just get looked at because there's a chance that there's some sort of a compensatory pattern that's starting that you may not notice. And that's when we start to see people in our office months later saying, well, I did have a fall a month ago, but it wasn't a problem. Like I got up and it was fine. Yeah, that's a big one. I feel fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, nothing's broken. Yeah, perfect. Or if it's not pain, right? They're like, oh, there is a twinge, but it's not a big deal. Well, and the typically the pain days later comes from when the blood supply has started to change, right? So you create your compensation pattern happens and then there's a change in the blood flow. And that's when you'll start to see, you know, two, three, four days later, you've done nothing, quote unquote, um, but there's been a structural change that's been taking place that's affected the function. And then we start to see that there's now a structural change that's happening because the function has been changed. Yeah. And the other thing to mention as you speak to that um, blood flow and circulation wise, as you come across that knee is if like as the, the structure gets smaller and smaller, there's not as much space for the nerve artery vein lymphatic to work. So I find at the elbows and at the knees, because they're, they're hinge joints and there's lots of basically blood supply to and from that has to pass through it is if there's a problem at the knee, there's almost always going to be a drainage issue at the foot. I just find that it's a little bit more noticeable at the feet, probably because of the, the distance from the torso of the foot. But if you have a problem, whether it's a rotation or a flexion or extension pattern coming through the knee, another indication, oftentimes you'll see a little bit of backlog in the foot for swelling or edema of some sort, just because like where the uh, adductor canal is, just because the the great saphenous vein can't drain as well because there's some tension or torsion across it and you end up with a little bit of backlog as well, just as part of your assessment process. Well, and when we talk about drainage from a mechanical standpoint, it everything has to go back up through the hip joint um, or through the you know canals that are there and then back up into the torso. So we have to make sure that we clear some of those areas off some tension before we start working more distally so that there is somewhere for that fluid to go if you're trying to move it. And also another good reason that we ask patients to kind of go for a walk after treatment is so that they can integrate the changes and make sure that the joints, which act as pumps and your knee is a big one, um, are able to kind of move that fluid themselves and integrate the treatment after it's done so that uh, you can see a change not only in the structure, but also in in the functionality of of the tissues. And I think that's a big one too, where people are afraid to move if there's pain somewhere or if something doesn't feel right. So they just stop moving altogether instead of trying to find, you know, maybe a 10 minute walk or go for a 10 minute bike ride instead, like finding maybe smaller, more mechanical friendly movements instead of just completely giving up their movement routine. Mm-hmm. So I find that's a big one too, is just encouraging people to keep moving and explaining to them how it does help the treatment process and it helps their body come back into health when they do keep that movement capacity uh, to some degree. Obviously, we don't want them going out for a run, but you still need to move your body and get that fluid moving through and get the lymphatics going. So let's talk about 
any kind of replacements. So I'm sure we all have a lot of patients that come in who've had a knee replacement or maybe they've had a surgery on the knee or just some type of medical intervention to the knee joint. Do you guys, um, I guess, is there any like tips and tricks you have? Do you just ignore the area? Do you still assess it and treat it? What do you usually <laughs> do or do you work more above and below the joint? Do you just ignore you the just area? Ignore it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you, patients come in and they're like, oh, that's a replacement. You shouldn't touch it. And I look at them, I'm like, shouldn't it move like everything else in your body technically? Like you shouldn't ignore be afraid it. to move your knee. So I find that becomes an educational moment as well. <laughs> well, I think from our laughing, we can all tell that we don't just ignore it. Um, but it it is mechanical at that point, right? So the knee joint has changed its structure. It is The tissues aren't going to move the same um, around that area or in that knee joint as they would have if they were anatomical tissues. Yeah. So we need to take that into consideration. So you are not trying to induce any type of movement through that knee joint, but really trying to make sure you're integrating how the knee joint is moving with the ankle and the hip so that that person can have the best outcome from that replacement. Typically, at least here where we are in Canada, replacements can take time. Um, So if you can see a practitioner before and after treatment, there can almost always be a better outcome um, to make sure that they're the hip and the ankle joint are moving well prior to having those, those procedures done, obviously with medical clearance um, in Canada, that's required. So if you have a patient that is getting a knee replacement or you are a patient that's getting a knee replacement, um, that can be something you can ask your medical practitioner. Um, but we are definitely interested in making sure that you are set up for success before and after treatment. Yeah. And when it comes to the mechanical component, as you're talking on like the change because of the structure of the joint, um, certain movements are limited based on each, each kind of person's a little bit different, but one common one that I find is always limited is the change in rotation directly at the knee because the change in the the joint itself with the, the replacement in there, if we're talking specifically about a replacement, you just have to be aware that that rotation that's present or that, that locking mechanisms definitely is going to be limited. So when you're looking at rotation patterns, it should be focused at the hip or at the ankle because the knee doesn't have the same capacity to do so. Um, The knee is one that we see a ton of different operations coming in from scopes to reconstructions to replacements. So ignoring (laughs) the knee is definitely not an option, but working with whatever structure the patient has. And if you haven't seen or looked up or read on what some of those operations are, obviously we can't know all of them because there's lots of options and there are are definitely some interesting or very specified ones, but having a general understanding of what a knee replacement is and how it's done and a scope and a meniscus uh, scraping or an ACL reconstruction, but understanding what those basic surgeries are is going to be big or going to be very important for you as you're working on someone who's had them on the knee to understand the change in mechanics of the knee itself. For sure. And to note that as well, as a, as a practitioner, if that individual is willing to share some of the, the imaging documents with you from their healthcare practitioner, their, their medical practitioner, sorry, um, 
it's a good way to understand what's going on at that joint and to give you that more information. Um, but typically you can 100% look up a knee replacement on YouTube. I know Colby's done that multiple times and understands how to understand how that's worked. Um, don't do that if you're a little bit squeamish, but it, yeah, it is interesting surgery. to see what that individual goes through. Gives you a better idea of, of what their body might've gone through for that surgery and that recovery. No doubt. Now, when it comes to the treatment of the joint and again, with this always uh, osteopathy is an art of treating the entire body and bringing the body to a new state of health and harmony. So we may exclude some of the longer based osteopathic principles, but I'll begin with that. Just saying that, like we said earlier, the knee very much so is a joint that's affected by the loading pattern above and below. And it's really affected by the compensation required for the gait cycle or to be able to walk. And if the body's limited and cannot walk as well as it should, and the, then you will often be one of the main spots that compensate and have some trouble from it. But when it comes to treatment considerations around the knee, what are some of the uh, main things that you guys find around the knee? Is it more of a muscular thing? Do you find an influence from obviously the loading pattern or potentially uh, something like the proximal fibular head attachment, or what are some of the things that you guys have to consider in the process of looking at a knee? Definitely always check the fibula right away. It's just a pretty quick check, quick fix, um, and that can clear up a lot for the patient if that isn't sitting where it should be. And then I do find with the knee, it does seem to be very much um, fluid-driven, meaning You'll always see um, a collection of fluid when it's not mechanically sitting properly. So kind of going through the mechanics of the knee, using the, the foot or the ankle as your longer lever and using the thigh as your upper lever and just kind of working through what that knee joint can provide you, I find is usually the best form of treatment. And then, of course, making sure those drainage lines are open for the body I do sometimes find that taking that leg off the table if the patient's in supine and just letting gravity decompress that joint and open up that hip socket um, also helps in the treatment process and just to really see how does that knee do under gravity without having weight on it. Um, and that's just when it's being stubborn to kind of get that final adjustment we're looking for. For sure. I agree with what you've just said, Sarah. The only other piece that I'd add into that is making sure with treatment that you've integrated that movement back in with the hip and the ankle. So if I've done some more local or focal treatment at the knee to kind of let something release or um, create a change there, then it's important to do whether that be some sort of a leg rotation or move the knee through its natural range of motion um, with the flexion extension and a little bit of rotation um, and then integrate that with how the ankle's moving and how the hip is moving prior to having the patient sit up um, to make sure that not only did, you know, was the change effective, but also that it's, it's working in conjunction with those two, two parts. Yeah. One other brief thing to think about with the knee that I, it's a concept that I've often kind of refer to is um, the leg really is kind of like wound up or spiraled into the hip. 
and a lot of the soft tissue that comes from the hip down towards the leg or towards the knee um, wraps around the leg to some extent in a, in a 3D manner, whether it's the adductors or hamstrings or gracilis or sartorius. So there is a bit of like a, a screwing in and screwing out component of it. So making sure that the the hip, but then also the femur and tibia, that their rotation and that unwinding pattern are lined up and working with one another, that kind of spiral pattern, whether it's fascial or muscular or just mechanical, but trying to make sure not only, as Amanda was saying, integrating back into the hip, into the foot, but that above and below the knee are on the same board or on the same page as far as that like unwinding spiral pattern. I think when you're talking about not only the knee itself, but even treating the fibrillar head, we talked about this a little bit with the ankle, but understanding how the body works, really paying attention to what the tissues are doing and making sure that you're feeling for that change on most cases, like less is more. Like there's no, you don't need to put real force through the knee. You don't need to like take it to end range of motion. Like those things typically in my experience and, and my understanding and my practice typically don't get me the change that I'm looking for. Yeah. And we haven't mentioned this stuff because it gets into the detail of the treatment itself, but using things like indirect treatment versus direct is, or using something like ligamentous articular strain or balanced ligamentous technique. There's all these other options and variations of how you treat, but without a doubt, as Amanda said, it's almost always less is more and finding the way in and the way that the body will accept and appreciate the treatment you've provided is far more important than just cranking on it or trying to get rid of one of these mechanical things we're talking about. It's difficult in the podcast setting verbally to describe the actual lesion that you're looking at because we can't describe very well in words all of the components outside of the mechanics and mechanics you can close your eyes and visualize what we're speaking on but it doesn't mean that the treatment is purely mechanical or purely direct into that mechanic to try and fix it mm-hmm. and that way in is so patient dependent it oh, changes yeah. every time it's never like sometimes the same thing works, but typically your the finesse of treatment comes in your in your ability to find that way in and treat the tissues and how the body will accept the treatment. Oh yeah, big time. But feeling the tissues is probably the biggest thing that was just mentioned that we hadn't mentioned earlier. Cause that dictates your path and the treatment you're going to provide and what that's going to look like. But again, treatment starts the moment you, you know, even touch the foot or touch the ankle or, you know, put your hands on the body. That's when you start gathering all the information that you need to understand where the lesion is and how you're going to treat it. So I feel like the biggest thing too is to just slow down until you start to pick up on those little, little moments that, give you so much information, especially at the very start of treatment where the patient might still be telling you about their weekend or just kind of chatting and you're, you're listening to the body and tuning into what's actually happening on the table. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you have any questions, please reach out to us on Facebook at Osteocast or on Instagram at Osteocast underscore. Uh, we'd love to interact and chat with you. 
Also, it would be great if you guys could leave us a review or rating and will help us reach more and more people over time.